0: The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. 2019 has been a year of some incredible interviews, recorded and broadcast. First of all, thank you all for being with me. You can support the Paul Leslie Hour if you like. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash the Paul Leslie Hour. On this particular transmission, I've come to Nashville, Tennessee. At the moment, I'm at the Sony ATV office, and seated with me is a man named Bobby Braddock, who has been called, and I'm quoting here, arguably the greatest country songwriter of all time. Dolly Parton called him a songwriter's songwriter. He's an inductee of the Country Music Hall of Fame, the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, the Songwriters Hall of Fame in New York, and he's been writing songs for more than 50 years. He's had numerous hits. Some of the songs I'm sure a lot of you will recognize would include He's Stopped Loving Her Today, Golden Ring, I Want to Talk About Me, Time Marches On. I'm going to name a few of the artists who have recorded his songs. They would include George Jones, Tammy Wynette, Tanya Tucker, Bill Anderson, Willie Nelson, Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Paycheck, Johnny Cash, Bobby Bear, George Strait, and some of the modern singers would include Toby Keith, Billy Currington, Joe Nichols, Blake Shelton. It's a very impressive list. So it's a great pleasure to welcome this man. He's a songwriter, producer, an author. Malcolm Gladwell called him the King of Tears. (laughs) Hey, Paul, how are you? I'm doing good, Bobby. It is, a And great I appreciate pleasure. you
1: quoting my mother, too. I think she was the one who said I was arguably the best uh, <laughs> songwriter. Thank you. Anyway, Thanks for the nice introduction.
0: It's an honor to be doing this interview with you. It's uh, my, my honor and my pleasure. Bobby, what is it that excites you about songwriting? Uh,
1: just to create something new, to try to do something maybe that's a little different than than anybody's done before, and uh, when you're writing that song, you never. I found out there, the part of your brain that creates the song, and the part of the your brain that is discriminating and and and, and maybe a, a little bit objective about what of what it hears, what what goes goes into the head. It was a. Totally different parts of the brain. So when I'm first writing a song, I'm more enthusiastic about the song. So, so it's very, very hard for me to be objective or tell if, if it's a good song or not. I'm usually going to think just about everything I'm writing at the moment is really good. And then I listen to it later and then just think, man, don't want anybody to hear this.
0: <laughs> so when you're writing the song, do you think, is it, Is it best to stay in the moment, or is there a part of you that wants to kind of edit as you go along?
1: I'm a little bit more that way now than I was when I was younger, and I spend more time with a song. Uh, If there's something I like, I'll hang with it a long time. And Because I listened back to some of my older songs. I was listening to one not too long ago that was a a hit song, and, and I thought, man... I wish I could go back in time and and write that a little differently, you know. Hmm. Of course, you can't do that. But uh, uh, just being away from it, it was was sort of like I was just being somebody who had never heard the song before. It's almost like I was hearing it for the first time. The mistake in the song, I thought, was the first verse was just really good, and the second verse was not quite as good, and always felt that the second verse should be even better than the first verse. Mm-hmm. As you get in the song, I always like them to build and, and reach a certain plateau, you know, by the time you get to, to the end of the song.
0: Something that I noticed in listening to your songs is it seems like one of the Bobby Braddock trademarks is a surprise.
1: Yeah, I like to do that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Would you say that that's a signature of yours? Is Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, sort of, I like, always, always liked the the
1: Alfred Hitchcock movies. And uh, uh, yes, I guess I try to do a little bit of that in songwriting. Of course, I had a co-writer on this song, but uh, one song that was that way, that was more recently hit, was uh, God is Great, Beer is Good, uh, People are Crazy. People are crazy is out of the song Billy Currington. And that's a little surprise of the old man giving his inheritance to the guy he was, the stranger he met at the bar, rather than rather than his kids. You know.
0: Hmm. <laughs> You've been at this for so long. Is there any part of songwriting that you find still is is difficult? Uh. Well, just
1: writing songs in itself is is is, is pretty difficult because you you're going to have to write a lot of. Throwaway songs to get to the, you know the really good ones, and it's frustrating. Even in good, even in good years, in in even times when I felt like I was kind of hot or in demand as a songwriter, the majority of the songs did, didn't get recorded. So that means a majority of what you're doing is you know, uh, from a business standpoint, is sort of a sort of a failure, you know, and. Uh, and to be a songwriter is to be is to be rejected. And so I tell people if they don't have uh, if they don't have uh well being from Florida, I use the alligator. If they don't have alligator hide, they probably shouldn't get into songwriting because there's gonna be a lot of disappointments. And you just have to get used to that. A lot of rejection. Hmm.
0: What in particular did you find yourself doing to overcome that rejection, or what would you do?
1: Oh, you just have to, you just have to accept that as, as uh, kind of an occupational hazard. You know, it's something you have to live with. That's why I say, if you don't like rejection, it's probably not probably not the business to be in. <laughs> <laughs> but I, that, but that goes to some extent. It, that goes to singers too. Whenever they have a song that's not a hit, or an actor who doesn't get the role that he or she had an eye on, you know. So I, the whole creative field is 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 one is one of rejection. Mm. And politicians, same thing, you know. Yeah. Two people run for something. One person is going to be very very disappointed. You know.
0: <laughs> That's true.
1: Yeah. And we all we all live in a state of competition. Really, I mean, if you if you. If you have your own business then you're in competition with other businesses. If you if you work for somebody then you're kind of in competition with other workers, you know, to get the boss's favor, you know. So and that's life.
0: <laughs> yeah. As you're saying, Nashville just it it's very very tough city to make it in the music business. What would you say is more important? Talent or persistence. Oh, I think one is probably about as important as the other. Hmm.
1: In my case, I think maybe persistence persistence may have been uh, 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 that may have trumped talent. Really, I'm not saying that to be modest. I know as uh, uh, as a as a producer, when I found this kid named Blake Shelton was taking him around to get a record deal. Uh, I mean, I have seen people who try to get somebody a record deal and they go to three or four places and they think, you know, nobody nobody wants him, you know. uh, I, I tried, but I went to every record label in Nashville. There may be a few now. I mean, they all combine and buy each other out and there's, you know, there's probably... Competing record labels, independent, and 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 uh, the old, old standbys, probably seven or eight. But p- when I was going around with Blake, there were about twenty viable places to go to. I went to every one of them, mm. every single one. I did not give up, and finally there was one left. The only reason I hadn't been to that one yet, that was Giant Records. I mean, good guy was running. They had you know two or three. I mean, it had Clay Walker. He was he was a big artist, was on the label. But I heard that they were going to shut down and go out of business. And uh, so I went there last, saw Doug Johnson. He liked Blake, wanted to sign him. But when that first record came out, and it took a while before the f- record came out, and his first record was Austin, which was the biggest debut single in 10 years. Uh, it was the first record, and it was number one for for five weeks, and and the, it was in in the pop top twenty as well. And and uh, that record came out, and sure enough, those rumors that we heard were true. It folded, it folded right when Blake's record was out there and starting to get starting st- just starting to get heavy air airplay, so he was going up the charts with a hit with no record label and uh warner brothers was a half owner of giant records the other was a guy named irv Azoff. so when giant folded warner took a look at all the artists on giant and they thought about it and they thought about it but then record the head of the label janet Med norman called me up he wanted to wait and see if we could start over and if radio would wait 3 or 4 months and start over and to start fresh with Warner Brothers but he called me up one day and said this record is unstoppable and he said uh, welcome to welcome to Warner Brothers <laughs> <laughs> and and Blake is to this day I mean that was God, that was 18 years ago to this day Blake is uh, still on Warner
0: <laughs> what was it about Blake Shelton that in particular you thought this guy He is really, he has what it takes. This friend
1: of mine who was running a small publishing company had signed Blake as a songwriter. And he had told me, he said, you ought to hear this kid I signed. I think uh, uh, people were telling me that I should produce because a lot of the records I got, I think time marches on. I won't talk about both of those Sounded a lot like the demos. Demo, of course, is when we go out and, and, and record a song and try to make it sound like a record and take that out around to play for the artist or the producer or the record record A&R people or executives. And people who said, well, you demos sound like records. Why aren't you producing records? So I was looking for somebody, and I had done some producing, I did a thing with Deborah Allen for Curb. And, uh, anyway, this guy, Michael Kosher was his name. He called me up and played me this song that he had written with, with, uh, it was a song he had written with Blake. And he played me this song. He said, what do you think? I said, who's that guy singing? He said, that's a kid I've been telling you about that I think he ought to produce. I said, well, I want to meet him. And, uh, he said, "What do you think about the song?" I said, "I'm play it again." I was listening to the guy singing, you know, and and I thought he sounded like a a i thought he sounded like a young Hank Jr. That was my that was my impression of hearing him over the phone. And I was interested in hearing more of him. Of course, when I met him, saw that the personality that he had, and and hearing his vocals coming through a big speaker, I just felt. Some, and I saw him live, too. I saw him out playing in the club. I, I thought he was a star. I thought he was a superstar. Just really believed in him. We got together, and I was sold on him, and, and he listened to some of my demos, and, and he, he wanted me to produce them. So that's what happened. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Something that I noticed when reading both of your books. First of all, they're great books, I have to thank, say. Thank you, Paul. Enjoy reading, enjoyed reading them. I noticed that women play a big part in your story. What influence have women had in your life? <laughs> Pretty big. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jim Stafford, who's uh, you know who Jim Stafford is, is had his own TV show. Yeah, yeah. He had a, had a record called Spiders and Snakes. He, he and I are from the same county down in Florida. And, and he said in an interview one time, he said, well, he said that, that's the reason we all got in the music business was to get girls, you know? <laughs> and, and I think he was maybe only half kidding. I think it was probably kind of true. Yeah. You know? But, uh, I don't know that the, those emotions, you know, uh, sorrow, anger, love and love and love <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, sexual attraction. Those are mighty forces and, and, uh, and, and any one of them can lead to a creative endeavor, you know, like a song. And, uh, so yeah, that, yeah, I think a lot of people are, are inspired by the opposite sex or the same sex, if that's what they're attracted to. I think they're, that, I think that's, I think a lot of people find, find that inspiring. That. That's just love can make a high school boy uh, 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 score a couple of touchdowns, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. songwriting has given you a lot. Do you think that it has cost you anything? Probably
1: not anything that I needed to keep, you know. <laughs> Let me say this real quickly, though. Uh, you were talking about my two books. I, in In May... I have a third book that I'm really excited about. Now, this one is not about me. It's called "Country's Greatest Lines," and the subtitle is subtitle is uh, stories, lyrics, and sketches from uh, American classics. And it's about the really good lines in songs, and and I'm. I'm doing a sort of, sort of co-authoring thing. I wouldn't call it co-authoring. I'm the author and, and there's a, a lady who is the illustrator. Mm-hmm. And initially I thought about getting a photographer. And I thought even about, I used to be kind of an amateur photographer, maybe making the pictures myself. Then I thought about her. She was my first cousin's best friend in high school. I knew her way back, and I knew she was a great artist. I'd seen her work, and when she retired working for the Kennedy Space Center, she decided to be an artist full-time in her retirement. So she sells her paintings, and she's really good. And I approached her about being the illustrator for the book. And it's what we have is on If you open the book, you look on the left page and you see a narrative that I've written about the line from the song or or, or, or the the song itself or the writers or the artist. And then you see the right page and you see an illustration. And when I'm doing the narrative, I'll think about exactly what I want the picture to be. And I would tell her, and that was the neatest thing to have see this picture and then watch it come to life, you know, by somebody who can really, really draw something. And an example is uh, this one song, this one song that Harlan Howard wrote. And it was a big pop breaker for Brenda Lee way back. And then in the 1980s, the Forrester Sisters recorded and had a big country hit with it. And it's called Too Many Rivers. And the line in the song that I chose is the great line was, When you try to put love back together, there's always a few little pieces you can't find. Hmm. So the illustrator, her name is Carmen Beecher. I had Carmen ask her to draw a picture of this. I got her pictures off the Internet of this gorgeous young couple, this guy and this girl. I said, draw it sort of like them. But change this and change that, you know, and so on and so forth. Have them in a passionate embrace, like they just can't keep their hands off each other and draw it like it's on, like it's drawn on a jigsaw puzzle. Mm. <laughs> and down at the bottom, the puzzles come in apart. You see the little pieces scattering and there's that line. When you try to put love back together. There's always a few little pieces you can't find. There's a line that shows. So that's the way it is throughout the book. There's 81 songs. And 81 Pictures. Okay. I just want to tell you about that. And it will be published by the History Press, and it will be in bookstores around the first week in May. May,
0: 20, May 2020. 2020. Yep. Okay. Yep. Well, I'm very excited about the book.
1: I am too. Thank you.
0: And I wanted to actually go into your book writing a bit. Okay. Did you find it to be... Uh, Natural process to switch from writing a three, four minute song to writing a book.
1: No. (laughs) This is so totally different. I mean, you can, I mean, just like you can be a songwriter and, and a pilot, but they're not related. You can be a songwriter and you can write a book, but they're not one and the same. And I had a great mentor. He's a great Southern writer. His name was John Edgerton. And he, uh, he mentored me. And, and, uh, mentored a lot of people. He was a good man. He passed away about four or five years ago. And while I was writing my books, I would, at first he told me, he said, you've got great stories. He said, but you, you need to learn about transitions. You need to, you need to learn how to make a transition from one situation into another rather than just abruptly stop writing and then start writing about something else. You need sort of a segue and, I used to, like in the middle of the night, I would go to his house and put my manuscript in the mailbox. A few days from, later, I'd hear from him and say, well, Bubba, come down here and let's talk about it. Now, a lot of times he'd say, you know, it's it's a good story, but I'm, I'm just not quite believing it, you know. Then the more he did it, the better reaction I was getting from him. And I'd go talk to him and he'd... I remember going in there one day, and he was sitting there, and he was sitting there reading my the manuscript and writing in the in the columns and everything in the margins. And he looked up at me with his squinty-eyed grin, and he said, "Damn, son, this is good." <laughs> and boy, talk about talk about being over the moon when I finally got his stamp of approval. And then from that point on, you know, it was—I mean, I learned. I had to learn, though. It—it it, it wasn't. Songwriting it just kind of came to me naturally. Writing a book I had I had to go to school on it, you know. <laughs> and I like I love doing it. I'm kind of an introvert, so I'm I like the solitary nature of it, you know.
0: Huh. <laughs> Would you say that you're a creature of routine?
1: Yeah, probably a creature of bad routine. <laughs> 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 yeah. I, I'm always fighting with with the clock, you know. Hmm. And I probably probably should have taken some time management courses along the way. Yeah, you know. <laughs> a little, maybe maybe one class in anger management and three or four in in time management. <laughs> course if I got the time management down, then I wouldn't be angry as
0: much. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting, you know. And this is something that a lot of people have observed. So I'm not saying anything new, but the book is just so honest. I mean, there are things in there that I think most people would say, I'm never admitting that. (laughs) You talk about life on Nashville's music row? Really, both of them. Yeah. You know?
1: Well, I I, I felt to have credibility, I had to tell the truth. I had to show warts and all. I mean, it's... if something was germane to the story that was not flattering to me, I felt like I need to tell that anyway, you know, because um, people I thought that people would say, well, you know, if he's telling that bad stuff about himself, I think probably what he's writing is true. Yeah, and that and that is true. I mean, it's, I don't think it's because I'm a good person that I'm that I'm honest. I think I think I'm kind of. I think I'm kind of OCD, and it just kind of bothers me if if something is not just right. Like if a picture's not hanging right, Mm. and I just can't tell stand telling something if that's not the way it is. And I'm not too fond of people telling me things that aren't the way they really are either. Yeah. And I, when I read a book, I look for honesty and credibility. If it's if it's a nonfiction thing, because if something comes along that that challenges that, I'll kind of lose interest in the book. You know.
0: Did you find it was therapeutic at all to write the book?
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> Especially that first one which is like a youth memoir. It's called Down in Auburndale. That was a, that was a local redneck pronunciation in Auburndale, Florida. I had this I grew up in a small town in in Florida named, in central Florida named Auburndale. This was before Disney and at that t- especially at that time it was a very southern culture town most of the kids i went to school with they were born there or in, in south georgia south alabama or, or rural north florida and and uh, uh, and just all kind of great memories there that 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 influenced you know had a big influence on my life and and most of the memories even the there were a lot of Course, there were a lot of bad things that happened in our lives, but I just have very, very fond memories of of those days, you know, a simpler time. And, uh, but I, it was me from the time I was born until I was in my early 20s. And I went off down and played in rock and roll band rock and roll and country band in 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 miami which was another world it's not miami was not back then was not really what you would call southern culture because there were so many people there from the northeast and a lot of southerners but there a lot of people from the northeast too and and uh, and i got into taking speed and and i kind of overdosed on and, and you know almost died And I was just a psychological wreck. I was kind of crazy for about two years. And boy, telling that story, my mentor told me, that's when, that's when he told me, he says, he says, son, he said, I'm hearing the story, but I'm not really feeling it. He said, I think you're holding back. So I revisited it and it's like I got a flashlight and went and, went back into my subconscious mind and started looking for stuff you know and man when it started coming out it was uh it was the opposite of amnesia it was like all this stuff that i had not even thought about since then it just started coming out like the floodgate was open and then when my mentor read that man he was jumping up and down he said this is great stuff this this is what i was talking about and so it made me made me look like the craziest person in the world which i was at that time, and uh, but I think it, you know, it, it made a, a lot better story. You know, and I try to do that in songs too. I try, I was try to write songs about real life. I, I always thought that's what country music was supposed to be. That's what made me love country music way back. You know, was the honesty in it. Hmm.
0: One of the things that I was listening to the other day was the John Loudermilk tribute mm-hmm. record. Yeah. And you did uh, one of his songs. Break My Mind. Break My Mind, yeah. I had the chance to interview John D. Loudermilk years ago, and I'll never forget this, and I was really, I I wanted to get your perspective on this. I asked him, what makes a good song a good song? And he said, a song is a good song if someone records it. (laughs) <laughs> I've never forgotten that, but I wanted to know from that's, Bobby Braddock. That's not a bad litmus test <coughs> for a bit it
1: for me to dispute John D. Low he, he was a he was a dear friend of mine. He a uh, little crazy and me being a little crazy. Uh, uh, you know, it was pretty easy for us to become friends. <laughs> when well, I met him was at a party. He was wearing a business suit. He was a fairly large man. He was wearing a business suit. He had a little mustache. And I thought he looked like the father in one of those old movies you would see from the 1930s, you know. And he went over in the corner and damned if he didn't stand on his head and stayed on his head for maybe three or four minutes. That was my introduction to John D. Latham He used to go. He used to follow hurricanes around to to get. I'll turn this off. I'm in the middle of an interview and I'll call you in about twenty, thirty minutes, okay? Yeah, y yeah, yeah. Okay, well well hold it. Love you talk to you a little while. Bye. My daughter. Let me turn this and off. Uh uh so so he, so Laudemilk would uh 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 yeah, he chased hurricanes to get the, the energy. And that man wrote not only a bunch of country standards, he wrote a bunch of pop standards. He wrote bubblegum pop. He wrote, wrote rock and roll. He just, uh, amazing, amazing man. Yeah, he was. And that tribute was, he had he had cancer and he had just a few months left and, and he knew that. And so we were there always to just pay tribute to this man that we so greatly admired, you know. And he will definitely go into the uh, Country Music Hall of Fame. Either this time or the next time or the time, but but he, he definitely will. He's, he's one of the greats.
0: Well, how would you answer that question? What makes a good song a good song?
1: I think it is totally subjective. I think it's a good song. I think it's a good song to the person who really likes it. <laughs> and I think it's probably no more and no less than that. That's just my opinion. And somebody hears something that they think is, or if they see a movie that they really like, great movie. Man, you ought to hear, you ought to hear this great song I heard. Well, that's, that's being subjective. That's their opinion. And if they think it's great, then it is great to them, you know? So, as, as a critic can t- get, tell you every reason in the world why something is good, but if you don't like it, what that critic says is not going to make a bigger <laughs> difference. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You've written some songs with some of the greatest songwriters ever.
1: I have. I've been
0: fortunate. A few of them would be Sonny Throckmorton. Yep. Curly Putman. Right. John Prine. Yep. Matrasa Bird. That's right. Who would you say has taught you the most? And, and Harlan Howard. Harlan Howard, yeah. <sighs> That's
1: hard to say. Uh, uh, I think. What helped me as a songwriter goes back to when I was a kid listening to me. I wrote my first song when I was four years old, just observing life. And uh, when I first came to Nashville and, and and after about a year and a half on the road with Marty Robbins, came to this very building where we now sit. Well, we're sitting at what was the skeleton of that building. They kind of tore a lot of it down and then built this onto it. But essentially, I think of it as the same place. But I came to Tree Publishing Company, which is now Sony ATV through acquisition. Curly Putman was the sole country song plugger, and he is also a great songwriter. And he was objective enough that he would pitch other people's songs just as easily as he would his own. And, and I already had my notions about country music and all kinds of music when I came here. But I'm sure Curly must have influenced me. He was a great songwriter and, and we wrote, I probably wrote, co-wrote more songs with Curly than anyone else. And, uh, we wrote D.I.V.O.R.C. and, and he stopped loving her today together. So he's been a, a big part of my songwriting life. And, uh, and Sonny Throckmorton, he's just, oh, he's just an original and his songs, his songs were almost kind of like, kind of like chants, like a war chant, like an Indian war chant, uh, repetition. He could write melodies that really get inside your head. He, 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 he just had a lot of feel, a lot of soul. Harlan Hiram was great, great stories. And my Bird. Byrd, I met her when she was 18 and heard a song she had written. I was just blown away. And we ended up, we sat and wrote about four or five songs together I never seen anybody so young that I thought it had some so much potential and she she considers me her mentor but I don't I don't think I taught her anything she didn't already know. <laughs> she wrote Strawberry Wine of course.
0: Somebody on the show once said that Strawberry Wine was the best song they had ever heard. <laughs> but well, I can see
1: that that could sure be one that it it was But well, she she had a co-writer on that, but it was that was her story. It was about when she, uh, uh, her stepfather, was from he was from Wisconsin, and one summer when she was a teenager, she went up to Wisconsin to stay with what she considered her grandparents I and mean, her step grandparents, and I think she met met a boy up there, you know, and I don't know if it was totally autobiographical or not, you know, but. But that was the inspiration for the song, you know, her her summer love when she was a teenager. You
0: know. Is there anyone out there, anyone living, that is, that you would like to write with that you haven't yet? There's a lot of them I would have to do by seance. Because <laughs> <laughs> so they're,
1: they're departed. Uh, there, there, there was a steel guitar player named Pete Drakehead, a publishing company called Window, Window Music. And he, because he had played steel guitar on a lot of Bob Dylan sessions, he got to know Dylan. And, uh, he had his own publishing company with some hit writers. He called me up and he said, uh, he said, Dylan wants to write with somebody in Nashville. And he asked me who I thought he should write with. He said, I, he said, I started telling some of my writers, but I hadn't told him the truth. I told him I thought he should write with you. Man, I was so excited. I was thrilled to death. And then, <laughs> then he called me up and said, Bob's changed his mind. He decided he's he's never really been a co-writer and he doesn't want to do it. Mm. <laughs> so I almost wrote with Dylan. That would I would love that. That would have been great. Yeah. I met some writers that I greatly admire. I hung out with Paul Simon one night and 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 uh, I don't know somebody like those guys. I would love to write with you know. I, yeah. uh I don't. I just I don't think about that very much. Just uh, I just kind of. Left my life, you know, uh, uh, and whatever happens to be in my life at that time, you know, and those who who are around me to write with, I don't think I could write with anybody and come up with a better co-writer than than those folks, you know, that you mentioned. Huh. <laughs> Ray Van Hoy was another. We we wrote together too. And like I say, John Prine, I didn't even I didn't know John Prine. Is As a girl who worked for me was a Prime fan and she, and she had met him. She went to him, told him, just made it up and said, Bobby Braddock wants to write with you. And then she told me, John Prime wants to write with you. (laughs) She manipulated us into writing with each other and I'm glad she did because he came, came by my house with his guitar and he had, he had some ideas and he showed me and one was called Unwed Fathers and the other was Children Having Children. I said, why don't we take, this and that and put them together and make it in one song. So we wrote Own Way to Fathers. It wasn't a big hit, but a lot of people recorded it, including, including Prine. Uh, uh, Johnny Cash recorded it. Tammy Winnett recorded it. Gail Davies. But, uh, yeah. That was great getting to write with it. I think John Prine is one of the best songwriters he
0: ever lived. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the the Bob Dylan the name of Bob Dylan because I was reading a magazine article recently, and it was talking about the CDs that Bob Dylan had or laying around his house, and there were some things that you wouldn't necessarily expect, like Eminem, for example. And in reading your book, Bobby Braddock: A Life on Nashville's Music Row, there's some some albums that you bought that Eminem. Yeah, <laughs> I love Eminem. <laughs>
1: He's got he. He's a, he's unlike a lot of rappers. He's all, he's also musical, and a lot of times his songs. I mean, but have the music it, you know and, and, and the singing, and he's got a lot of anger, but he channels that anger into his into his words. And uh, am I a big rap fan? Well, it depends on who the rapper is. Not really, boy. I, I love Eminem's rapping, you know, and, and some and. And there's two or three of the African-American rappers that, that, that I like. I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of poetry, you know. There, there's no music that I don't like, per se, that kind i of, I'm maybe not the biggest polka fan in the world, you know, but, but most, most music I really like. Uh, when I was in high school, I mean, I was loving country, loving R&B, and loving—I uh, think I already said that—loving pop music, rock and roll. I just love music. Mm. But boy, I had a big, big love for that music when I was a teenager, country music. Then I had a, I mean, I fell in love with that. And even in a small southern town back then, the majority of the kids liked rock and roll. I got in a, I got in a fist fight with a guy one time. And he said, he, he said, he said, he said, country music. He said, that's uh, S-H-I-T. Boy, I jumped on him. I mean, we we got in a fight over that. That's that's how much I love country.
0: <laughs> Why is it? Why would you say that it is that you love country music? That I think to to start with,
1: I, I I love the I just love the raw reality of it. You know, of of life, of, of life among common everyday people. You know. I mean, I like a lot of the old pop standards. I and mean, some of the songs, they got great melodies, but a lot of them, they sound like they were written by somebody wearing a tux, holding a glass of champagne, you know, at the party. And all this country stuff sound like it's written... Like the Hank Williams stuff sound like it was written in great pain and despair, you know. I like that stuff. <laughs> I, I like sad movies. I, I like... I don't know. I can... I find tragedy to be inspiring, you know, and, you know, tragedy, not real life tragedy. I don't like that, but, uh, but I, I love fictional tragedy though.
0: Something that people would notice when they read your books, but also in a lot of your, uh, in, in a lot of your songs. And then a, a while ago, somebody, they loaned me a vinyl record of yours. Oh, God. And I'm sorry. <laughs> you have the Bobby Braddock sense of humor you it seems like humor is a big part of your personality. What cracks you up uh, uh probably
1: more often than not something that's kinda of totally accidental <laughs> you know that just irony or 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 some one thing that really cracks me up is 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 uh, uh in text messaging uh uh Auto correct used to be pretty funny, but the really funniest thing I think is is the voice to text thing, where the where I know sometimes it doesn't understand my Southern accent and, and might get something mixed up. And, and I don't know, was this PG rated or R rated or what? I can always bleep. Okay. <laughs> there, there, there was a friend, friend of mine. I don't remember what I intended to say to. Or, but I, I looked, and they were just horrified after I sent it, and 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 I was asking her how something was today or something, just making a nice, polite back. <laughs> it said, "How are your nipples today?" You know? <laughs> oh my God! I was just mortified. Now if that had been somebody else, I would have fallen down on the floor laughing at
0: it because that's pretty. That's pretty damn funny. Ah. <laughs> uh, one thing that's we none of us can avoid is that. When we're not around, all of us will be talked about. Yeah, what would you like people to say about you when you're not around? Does that mean when I'm not around can't hear them, or when I'm dead? (laughs) When you're not, when you're, they, you can't hear them. They're across Uh, town. Oh, hell,
1: anything good. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing bad, like, like which is often said. So, I mean I've written about that too. I wrote a song one time called The You know, The Words We Can't Hear. And, and, and uh Oh If we could hear all the things that people say about us, I think we would be I think we would be rendered just totally useless. I think we'd be so mortified we couldn't even function, you know. Uh I don't know that we could survive it. I tell you the little hint that we have of that is a thing called butt-dialing. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a couple of women butt-dial me before. And, boy, I tell you what, if you play it smart, you can utilize that. And, boy, you can play it to your advantage, you know. Because <laughs> I told you, it, it's in the book. It's, it's my book, uh, uh, whatever it's called, A Life on National Music Row, about a, about a lady who butt-dialed me. <laughs> And 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 when somebody, basically, what it was, I mean, somebody told me, you know, I was supposed to see her that day. She was at a girlfriend's. Can can I wait till tomorrow? Because she's, you know, she's she's really sad and she needs a friend right now. I said, yeah, that's fine. And then phone rings and I hear somebody talking. And she's saying, you know, I just really like Bobby so much. But then this so and so, you know, I mean, he's he's out here close to where you live and. You know, I I feel like a whore. I'm just blank, blank, two men. You know, so I could have called her up and said, "I heard what you said." You know, I don't ever want to see you again. And I said, "I, I don't want to play a game," which actually I was. I said, "I don't want to play a game. I just want to tell you the truth. I heard what you said." She said, what, "What what what was I saying?" I told her, and she said, "Oh, I'm uh oh, I'm so so sorry," and. And, uh, so a few minutes she called me up and she crying. She said, could I just come on and see you right now? I said, but you weren't going to see him. I don't care. I want to see you. I said, okay. <laughs> so I played it to my advantage.
0: <laughs> but butt dialing Dow, can be, I mean, it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Are there ever people that, you know, you've been in the music business for so long and you've, you've had so many experiences. Are you ever in awe of people? Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. All the time. Yes. Yes, I am. Yeah. And not with a lot of people, those that I am, I just feel sort of overwhelmed by, it. you know, like I met Paul McCartney. I thought, man, this guy has accomplished so much. And, and just in, in just a month or two, he accomplishes what I would like to do in a lifetime. I just felt overwhelmed. You know, I mean, he was he, he was just at his brilliance and his talent. And I tell you a guy in Nashville that I'm sort of in awe of talent wise. And that's, uh, that's Ray Stevens because he always just did everything and did it so well, you know. Not just the comedy, but I mean, the music, he plays several instruments. I mean, he sings. sing. He's funny. He's, I mean, guy's a couple of years older than me and he's just opened a big, a big, huge nightclub. I mean, he's like, you know. I admire it when I see it. people my age or older than me who are still ambitious because I'm still ambitious. I'll tell you what I'm in awe of is, uh, 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 as in a professional sense. And that's, uh, uh, I started thinking this about five or six years ago. It was this guy who was 10 years older than me and he, he was at the top of his game as a movie director. And that's Clint Eastwood. I thought, man. Here he is, you know, in his eighties. And he's got up for an Oscar nomination, and he did last year. He's at the top of his game and he's in his eighties. And when I'm his age, I hope I'm doing something like that, you know. And and yeah, I'm in awe of people like that. Yeah.
0: You know? As I was mentioning at the top of the interview, there's all these awards, honors that you've had, I don't think there's many people who are both in the Country Music Hall of Fame, the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, and then the, new, the well, National. The,
1: yeah, the Hall of Fame. In yeah. New York, the Songwriters
0: York. Hall of Fame. Yeah. There's like Willie Nelson, you, Loretta Lynn, and Dolly, and that's it. Is that's that it? All, I think so. That's what? in all three.
1: Wow. What am I doing in company like that? Wow. Wow. <laughs> What's been the biggest honor? Well, that's one. I mean, oh, it was Dolly. Oh, my God. Yeah. Biggest. Well, you know, the Country Music Hall of Fame, that was, I was not, I honestly was not expecting that. The great Harlan Howard, I had lunch with him about, I guess it's about, about two or three weeks before he passed away. And he called me Double B. He said, Double B? He said, you know, uh, it might take some time, might take a few years. He said, but I'm, I'm starting to get the ball rolling. I'm sitting up. I'm, I'm sending letters out to people. I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "He said, damn it, get you in the Country Music Hall of Fame." I said, "Harlan, they're not going to put me in the Country Music Hall of Fame." He said, "You you just wait and see." And when they called me up, I guess it was about maybe about eight years after that, uh, and the guy who was the head of the Country Music Association at that time. He said, I got good news and bad news. The good news is you're uh, going be inducted in the Country Music Hall of Fame. Bad news, you can't tell anybody about it. Mm. <laughs> and I said, are you sure you made a mistake? I mean, I just could, I couldn't believe it. I was not expecting it. So I don't know. I guess I must consider that. I consider all of them pretty special. But I guess that one's quite special too. And, you know, the Songwriters Hall is of Fame too. When other songwriters vote, for you to be in the Hall of Fame. That, that's just, what What could be a bigger honor than that, you know, be honored by your peers? I'm just, it's funny, when you're in the Country Music Hall of Fame, if you go to the ceremony, they insist, they want to send out a limo to get you and come up and you walk on the red carpet. It's so funny, when they pull up, when I get out of the car, you see the fans sitting around waiting. They've come down there to see Carrie Underwood and Garth Brooks and Vince Gill and all the famous people that are going to be there. And, and you see the lips moving and you, and you, you know what they're saying. They're saying, who's that? You know, and they have no idea who I am. You know, I'm a songwriter. There's a, there's a few, those who follow songwriters, there's a few that are waving at me and had their books out. The majority of them are saying, you know, who's that? <laughs> you know? And, uh, So that's what's great about the songwriter, about being a songwriter or a musician going in the Country Music Hall of Fame, because you're getting the equal induction with the the big superstars, you know. And they asked me, who do you want in the Country Music Hall of Fame to induct you? And I thought, well, who's going to give me a really good speech? Bill Anderson, you know. (laughs) Whispering Bill. (laughs) Huh?
0: Whispering Bill. Whispering Bill.
1: Yeah. And he he whispered a great induction. He did.
0: So I'm just—I'm lucky. I'm just so—I'm so fortunate. Yeah. I've been doing this thing at the end of the interviews that people have really enjoyed, and it's like a lightning round—just the first thing that pops into your mind. Uh oh. The <laughs> best place to eat in Nashville.
1: I'm I saying the best is—is is subjective. I love as an Indian restaurant called Shalimar. I don't think it's the healthiest restaurant, so I don't eat there real often, but oh my God, it's good. It's just absolutely wonderful. And another really, and a couple of other good places. One is Ted's Montana Grill, and another really good one is the Green Hills Grill. Not the, not the, not the fanciest restaurants in them, but I think that for my taste, the best. The best. A
0: great movie you've seen.
1: I'll tell you a recent great movie I've seen. is my favorite movie for the past two or three years. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh-huh. It's says Quentin, Ser- Quentin Tarantino film, and it stars it stars Brad Pitt and and, and Leonardo DiCaprio. And, 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 and oh my God, it is just it's an amazing. If you like Quentin Tarantino movies, I think it's the best he's. I think it's the best he's ever made. And and Brad Pitt plays a real, real badass in it. Uh, And it has a very unusual twist that has to do with the Manson family, and that's all I'll say. uh, But an amazing film.
0: A book that has made a big impression on you. Oh.
1: Thomas Wolfe's Look Homeward, Angel. Because Thomas Wolfe wrote a story about himself and his family, but he changed the names. And he told into into minute detail about each one of them. And those people to this day, and I first read it when I was in my 20s, to this day, I still remember those characters. It's just as though they were real people that I actually met. He made that kind of impression on me with that book. And he died at 36, 37 years old. He died young. But That is just, that is such an amazing book. Yeah.
0: I always like to give the guest the stage at the end. You just never know who's listening. What would you say to anyone who's tuned in?
1: To anyone? A specific person?
0: Could be anybody. Young, old. We don't know where they are. (laughs) Very open-ended.
1: I would say that if you have a dream and you have good reason to believe that, that it's a valid dream, don't give up on it. Just, just be obsessed with it. And, and you mentioned Malcolm Gladwell. There's something that, that he has said in one form or the other. He said, he says a lot of very wise things. He finds a lot of really strong premises and, 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 and once, once he does that, he makes a strong case for it. And that is, say, for instance, This can apply to anything, but say if you're a songwriter and you want to be successful as a songwriter or as a singer or as an actor. But specifically, I'm going to say songwriters because I tell songwriters this and I've been saying this lately. And, and that is, uh, uh, volume and diligence. Just keep writing those songs and keep Keep trying to get something to happen with them. That's what I'm doing right now, is is writing a lot of songs and pitching a lot of songs. And, and and some of the success I've had has been, I've had great song pluggers, but that's why I was not just relying on song pluggers, but getting out there and pitching them and playing them for people myself. And uh, I would say do that, you know, just... Volume and repetition. Volume and repetition. I think if you do that and stick with it and don't be if somebody I tell you, when somebody says this I say, Don't say that, you're sabotaging yourself and say, Well, I had such and such, that was such a good song, you know, and nobody cut that and that forget that. Move on to the next song, the next song and next song. And you get a streak going, then go back and get that song and recycle it again, you know. <laughs> but don't don't start saying what didn't happen. Don't talk about what didn't happen. Talking about Start talking about what you want to happen and what is going to happen. And there's that old saying, you've got to believe it to see it. You know, <laughs> If you really believe it will happen, there's a very good chance it will happen. If you're going to sabotage it and think it won't happen, then it's probably not going to happen. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it was my very first or one of my very first trips to Nashville. And I was in the recording studio and songwriting room of John Goodwin, and he sat me down and he played me song after song written by Bobby Braddock. And here we are at the end of the decade, and I get to interview you the last interview of our decade, and it's a real thrill for me to sit down and talk to you. Well, thank you.
1: you're not talking about are you talking about Goodman from Chicago? Goodwin. Oh okay.
0: Yeah,
1: oh, I've heard of him. I don't. Well, God bless him for playing my songs. You know.
0: <laughs> my last question: Who is Bobby Braddock? Uh,
1: a very, very flawed man. A very, very flawed man. But basically, basically honest. And if somebody was in trouble, I would sure, I would sure try to help them. So I do, I do have my good side. But then I just do a lot of bad stuff too. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly to myself. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Bobby. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much.
1: I have one brother and his name was Paul, you know, and, and my father's name was Paul. I have uncles named Paul, so Paul is a big name in my life, and I'm glad I got to do uh, uh, an interview session mm-hmm. with, with Paul.
0: <laughs> and my middle name is Edward, I should tell you. That's right. <laughs> you, you, I think you wrote me that. Yeah,
1: yeah. My father was Paul Edward Braddock. And my brother was Paul Ember Braddock Jr. And, and uh, you're uh, P-E-L, they were P-E-B. Yeah. yeah. My father had a drugstore. He wasn't a druggist, and his partner was a druggist named W.A. Hobby. And he named the drugstore, he was P-E-B, and and his partner was W-H. So they called the drugstore, uh, Pebois.
0: <laughs> Pebois. I like that. Uh, I enjoyed this. Bobby, until next time. Thank you. Bop, pop, deedly, bop, pop, bop, ba-doo, pop, zi, pock, a not poxy si, ki, chacha, kook, a buzz, a a buzz, a neck, a pook, a ket, go, a rum, pock, doodle, a zan, but a wadaki, panthe, kay, yeah. A zika, waka, pook, a dong, dong, doodle, look, a dee-boo,
1: goodbye.